attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. Today's guest on the podcast, a return to excellence, Elliot Friedman. Back for round two. That's right. The long-awaited part two to Elliot's first uh, show. Elliot was episode number 25 way back last year. And uh, here he is back for part two. We have a pretty good time. Uh, There's some good laughs and whatnot. I think you're going to dig it. I know I always say that, but really, it's fun. Before we get to Elliot, of course, May 6th, 2017. Have I told you about that? If I haven't, I probably should. OJ90, that's right, the 90th summer celebration of Camp Ojibwe for Boys taking place at the Weston North Shore in Wheeling. It's going to be quite a to-do. Go over to OJ90.com right now. You can check out some uh, early stuff about it. You can go ahead and book your room. We've got a block of rooms at a reduced rate. So you can go ahead and get that out of the way if you'd like. Uh, and keep your eyes open on your uh, inbox because in just a couple weeks, tickets are going to go on sale and you'll be able to get set up for OJ90. We'll keep it short and sweet. Here we go. Elliot Friedman, part two on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. A man's got a heart, hasn't he? Joking apart, hasn't he? And though I'd be the first one to say that I wasn't a saint I'm finding it hard to be really as black as they paint Okay, we are back for episode two of Elliot Friedman. Esquire? Actually? Well, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, but I don't, I don't, I don't admit to being one because it would be another reason for people to dislike me. <laughs> so roughly a year ago, we sat down for our first interview and you offered me many times between then and now to sit down again. But here we find ourselves, our new yearly tradition, the last day of camp. <laughs> so I uh, formally in front of the world apologize for not getting this out sooner. I know that your fans are clamoring. At least two. I have gotten no less than seven emails from Tim Shovers just begging for the next episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, picking up where we left off last time, we had sort of taken a journey through your camper years and your JC years. Now moving into your history as a senior counselor. Okay. So, do you remember off the top of your head when you became a senior counselor? I became a senior counselor in 1963 because George Kerman and Marty Salzman and Yogi Rustin and I were the last class that graduated mid-year. So we, so we weren't JCs for two years because we were in college for a half a year before uh, uh, that otherwise would have been a full year in high school. 
So I started in 1963 in cabin three. George Kerman was my senior counselor, and both of us will be damned if we can remember our JC. Because <laughs> we talked about it the other day, and neither of us knows who it was. Nice. So you move up uh, significantly in in responsibilities at camp. Yes, not in money, just in responsibilities. Sure. <laughs> yes. You no, wanna... actually, I went from paying seventy five to getting two fifty. Oh well, look at that. That's a well, nice swing. Well, JC, no. <laughs> see, when you were JC, you paid seventy five dollars to come to camp, okay, and work the entire summer. But you got to play in watermelon league, which for me, of course, was terrible because I couldn't play softball very well i wound up catching as a as a jc and then when you're a senior counselor then you then you got paid i see excellent so a little little tidbit there for those of you that are uh, looking to uh, sue the camp for uh, (laughs) all kinds of things sure so moving into being an sc how do your responsibilities at camp change what do you start to have other jobs well my responsibilities changed because uh very frankly people treated me with more respect in the second year than they did in the first. In the first year I was a very good junior counselor but remembering as I said last year I was a non-athlete and so therefore I was assumed to not be able to do anything, okay? When I became a senior counselor and I had already built up something of a reputation of doing things fairly well, when I was uh, when I got to be a senior counselor then um, obviously I, I got to do more and had more and had more responsibilities. Okay, I was in charge of a cabin along with George, um, as well as I was officiating more, okay, um, and doing and doing all kinds of things in that year. But that other than that, that year was kind of nondescript. It wasn't until a little bit later on that, that I got to be more ingrained in in uh, in the situation. Gotcha. So a little later you start doing the Medman. Well, I was doing the Medman starting in sixty three. In sixty two I, I I was assistant editor to Shelley Gottlieb and then the following so that year I was the editor of the Medicine Man. Nice. And how long did you uh, hold reign at the Editorial desk I of the held Man. I held editorial content of the Medicine Man until about 1970 or 71, I think, maybe even 72, which was my last official year as a staff man before I had my unofficial years as a staff man. <laughs> we will definitely get to that. Yeah, I understand that. And then Ricky Patter took over. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the MedMen. So I have uh, the MedMen's and and the Warriors from that time period, and sort of just seeing the the for lack of a better way to say it, the typeface and the way that it's set up. Tell me about making the Medicine Man. Oh, well, that was a lot of fun, okay, because you basically typed it on a stencil, and that a stencil being a, a, a piece of film that, may, that you made a hole in, okay, so if you typed the letter E, it would make a hole shaped in the letter E. And if you did it wrong, if you wanted to correct it, then you had to put stencil corrector on it to fill the hole so that you could... <laughs> So that you could type on that same spot again sure. and, and correct it, um, and then it was on a mimeograph, okay, a uh, hand a hand cranked mimeograph machine, uh, which you also had to ink, okay. So uh, <laughs> af- after after eight weeks, uh, the rest of me was white, but my hands were kind of black, um, and uh, and you and you you just cr- you, you cranked that baby. Between the mimeograph and the stencil correction, it was like just like getting oh, high yeah, every day over at the medicine man office. Well, I mean, by comparison today, okay, with the computers and so forth and so on. But back then, it was it, it was the dark ages of uh, right. it, it was just this side by comparison of having uh, a hammer and a chisel. Sure, I mean, in these days, they probably spend considerably more time writing it than producing it. But you guys were sort of the other way around. Yeah. You were spending so much time to actually create the thing. Correct. Um, they look amazing, considering. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 
And we used to put cartoons, and if you had cartoons in, you had to stencil them and, uh, and, and so forth and so on. Everything nice. was done by putting a hole in the stencil. Very nice. Uh, I, I will tragically admit in front of everyone that my first year, probably my first year at camp, maybe my second, but my first year at camp, I um, wanted to have a somewhat tyrannical control over the rec hall because I cared about it and no one else seemed to. Um, so in deciding to do some heavy-duty cleaning, I am personally responsible for, th- for throwing away the mimeograph machine. And I am personally responsible for thanking you over and over again for getting rid of that goddamn thing because, good heavens. <laughs> Although, you know, maybe for the 90th party, what you should do is your program could be mimeograph pages and you can stop and collate your own on the way in. Uh, that, would, that would be a wonderful <laughs> idea, and I, I heartily suggest that you put that one away. <laughs> so you're doing the Medicine Man and the Warrior. Now, these early uh, staff years, are you coaching the week as well? Oh, no, 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 no. In 1963, which was my first year as a senior counselor, I wanted to coach the week. I begged to coach the week. I pleaded to coach the week. Marty Salzman, who could do the medicine man instead of me, pleaded not to be a coach, begged not to be a coach, okay? However, I'm a non-athlete. If I am a non-athlete, then by definition, I cannot coach. So therefore, they did not let, uh, I did not coach in 1963. My first year as a coach was 1964. I see. And there, uh, let, me, let me just jump ahead, okay? Now, there is, an, there is a story that has gone around, and it has been denied by more people than it has been attested to. <laughs> However, I will repeat the story, and each of you can decide for yourselves whether you want to believe it or not. 1964, I'm getting a collegiate week team. Yay, okay? And, you know, we picked the numbers, one, you know, one through ten for who gets first pick and so forth and so on. It was not okay. done in front of the camp. It was done like it is now. It was done in the lodge. Okay. I am told that the other nine coaches got together and picked numbers not one through nine and that they put <laughs> ten tens in the, in, in, in the, in the hat. So that as each of them pulled their number, which was a 10, they would say the number that they actually had, okay? And I would get a 10 no matter what so that I would get last pick in collegiate. <laughs> now, again, this story has been denied more than it has sure. been confirmed, but I will tell you that I've heard it from more than one person. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty solid trick. Uh, yes, indeed. Now, I thrilled the pieces to, to mention. Yeah. From the 10 spot, how did you do? I finished seventh. Okay, well... Yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I first year I, coaching. Okay. In the yeah, spot. L- listen, them, them, what can, them, what Cam does, and them, what Cam teaches. Okay, so as a coach, I'm actually very good. Okay, but first you have to get a team. Then once you get sure. a team, then you can prove it. And in fact, the the next two years, I finished second, so sixty five and sixty six. That's a significant upgrade. Yeah, and then first in sixty eight. And then first again in '72. I would like to point out that I did that I did finish first or second in four out of my seven years. <laughs> but I don't want to brag. Sure. Uh, do you remember any of your sort of star athletes from that time that really helped you out? Oh, uh, well, let's see. Uh, well, in 1965, I had uh, the, the either the first pick or the second pick. I don't remember which. I had Louis Schwartz. Um, 
He was Louis the Load, okay? Because except when he was on the ball field, he was horizontal, okay? <laughs> they, would, they, would, they would, like, crank him out of the bed, and they'd send him out to his activity, and he would be, like, the best athlete ever. And as soon as the game was over, he gave a cheer, and he went back to being horizontal <laughs> for the entire summer. Um, <clears throat> so I had him in 65. Um, in 68, I had first pick, and I had Mark Mursky. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Uh, no, uh, Michael Lewis. In 72, I had the fifth pick, and I had, and I had Mark Mursky. So I, 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 remember, I remember those people. Gotcha. Also in 68, um, I had the ugliest, most horrible team ever in terms of personality, okay? <laughs> this, was a, this was just a horror, okay? And so we, we ate by teams at that time, okay? And I had, I had one kid, a cute kid in cabin three. I think it was, his name was Barry DeLee, okay? Barry DeLee was the only person that had an assigned seat. It was across from me. Because if I looked to either side, I wouldn't be able to eat lunch. The only way I could eat, the only, the only, the only way that I could, eat, the only way that I could eat lunch was to look at Barry Delee, because otherwise I would be nauseated. They were all fat. They were ugly. They were big. They were, they, 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 some of them, some of them didn't know how to wipe their mouths. Whatever it was, I couldn't couldn't take it anymore. But it does prove that I will win at all costs, because they they were just they were they were really something. Now, in those days with Collegiate Week, were Song Night and Stunt Night the same night, or were they separate? No, no. Song Night, <clears throat> Song Night was early in the week, okay, and Stunt Night and Stunt Night was later in the week. The theory being at that time, and now again, that <clears throat> you had more time to prepare the, uh, you had more time to prepare the uh, stunts. Now, I would assume that those areas were strengths for you. Yes, yes. In fact, in 1966, they changed the rule. And they they seriously claim that they didn't do it just to screw me, but between us, they did it just to screw me. <laughs> it, you, it, fifty it, years, folks. Fifty years. He yeah. hasn't let it go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got more than that. If you want to want to go back to the fifties, I'll tell you a couple of people I'd still kill. Um, but um, they uh, it used to be that you could do whatever you wanted to in song night. Okay, so I would I would do like little presentations and blah, blah, make it longer and you know more spectacular. Sort of add to around exactly, the songs. Exactly, exactly. And so in 1966, they made a new rule that said that you could only do two songs in a chair. Okay, because they because they said it was because it was too hard to judge otherwise. Well, it seemed to me it was easier to judge the other way. Mm. But anyway, so I went crazy for three days and then I adjusted to it. Nice. So my guess is there are at least a couple of your stunts that might stick out in your memory. Do you want to tell us about some of your stunt oh, experience? Oh, God, yes. Oh, heavens. All right. Well, let, let's, let's get it out of the way. Okay, and then we'll, go on to the, then we'll go on to the better stuff. Okay, in 1965, <laughs> I had uh, a stunt. Oh, first of all, you didn't do stunts when you came to camp. You did stunts. Most people prepared stunts or at least had ideas for stunts before they came to camp. Okay. And because I and because I am a uh, uh, a Broadway person and and I was looking for albums and so forth and so on, I would always be looking for for things that could be stunts. So this album, uh, there was an album called Three Billion Millionaires. Okay. And the album Three Billion Millionaires was about the uh, it was um, uh, it was a uh, fundraiser for the United Nations, okay? okay? So these different stars would do a different number on there. In fact, you can tell that they're recorded separately, okay, just from the, the quality of the album. And there are two songs in there that were terrific. One was called, one, one that dealt with 
uh, the fact that the United Nations was the last time, was the first time since the Tower of Babel that all the nations had gone together. And then there was a song in it called the Newly Organized Brotherhood of Marching Babies, the N-O-B-O-M-B, okay? Sure. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, you want me to do the song? No, <laughs> let, let, let's, let's skip the song, okay? Anyway, so... You take, so you take the United Nations there, okay, then I get the no-bomb, okay, and then I had the, the Russian and the American um, uh, ambassadors do a solo in which I rewrote the words to the song Reviewing the Situation from Oliver. So they were reviewing the situation about whether or not there should be peace or war and so forth and so on. And by the way, the lyrics were brilliant. Okay, that, that was the original song in there. The other mm. two songs I pulled off the record, but reviewing the situation, I wrote them myself. So now I got this really, really good stunt with three really, really good songs in it. Okay, the original plan was for the first song, which was which was the Tower of Babel, yes, to be sung by three people: Myron Auerbach, Louis Schwartz, and somebody else who I don't remember. Okay, but the other two Schlemiels, Myron Auerbach and the other guy, couldn't do the song. So I said, okay, Louis, you do the song by yourself with a microphone, okay? okay? That was number one. Now, the other thing was that I I created, I wanted to build this tower, okay, and then knock the tower over because uh, the lyric is then the great, uh, uh, knock the great tower over and so forth and so on, okay? so Historically a bad idea, just for the record, no, building no, no, the Tower no, of no, Babel, it historically. Good, it was a good idea, but it's going <laughs> to turn into a bad idea in about 15 seconds if you'll stop interrupting me. So, 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 so I wanted to do it in the black light. So I painted these boxes white so that they could build the tower. Okay, and then when the lyrics said, "Then, then this great tower, they knocked the great tower over." They kicked the boxes, and the boxes would go over. Okay, the problem is that nobody told me that the that the paint for the black light had to be special paint. You couldn't use regular paint. You had to use special kind of paint. And so there's this blur of very 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 slight look that you could po- that you could possibly see out of it, okay? And 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 so forth and so on. Meanwhile, Louis Schwartz and the microphone sounded like death warmed over, okay? So the so uh, the, the the song the, the the chorus of the song goes Babylon 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 like that okay uh, two thousand years BC and so from that point forward it was known as Elliot 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 he lost it for himself because I took second place instead of first place in Sunday okay. Uh, just so that 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 is the, that is the memory. So that's one of the lower lights in the. Well, no, it was a no, no. I was very proud of that. That was a damn good stunt. Okay, well, it's just the the first third of it <laughs> fell flat on its back. Okay, but then I had another fifteen kids singing the newly organized Brotherhood of Marching Babies in diapers. Okay, and then the, <laughs> then the then, then the two and then then the this this was an Elliot Friedman production. Okay, <laughs> this was this was this was. Not slipshod. No. This this was this was put together with with whatever. <laughs> Except in the performance, the first the first third of it the first third of it died a, a terrible death. Okay? <laughs> okay, so that's the the infamous Tower of Babel. All right, stuff. now the other but side. From there, of, you know, the other side of the coin is in 1968, I did your good man Charlie Brown. Now, just uh, let's let's take it back for a second. Everybody always remembers that Stunt Night was great. Okay. Wrong, okay? 
Most of the stunts in 1968 were as terrible as most of the stunts are today, okay? But nobody remembers that because you have this inflated memory of what, uh, of what stunts were at that time. So in that year, of the 10 stunts, eight of them, the first eight stunts were just horrible, okay, one right after the other. Steve Wolf had the ninth stunt, and I had the tenth stunt, okay? He did, uh, Mickey Goldfine played the fire-eating dragon, okay? And, uh, and he was, he, he had a voice that sounded like a dragon to begin with, and we're going to save the maiden and so forth and so on. Nice. And I did You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And the way I did You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, I did five songs from You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and I pieced them together. And one of them is this real long, uh, thing uh, that Snoopy does. Okay, here's the World War One flying ace flying over uh, uh, on a Sopwith camel seeking the infinite red baron. It's about four minutes long, okay? And I knew that there wasn't enough time to learn this song in 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 the short amount of time that, that Stunt Night could be performed, okay? So I built a teleprompter, okay? In fact, I had the idea and Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is now using it, okay? <laughs> So anyway, so I had this teleprompter, and I had two kids backstage who were rolling all of the words, okay, on my teleprompter, <laughs> so that he could do, so that he could do this entire solo, okay. And the the thing with my stunts is because I know how to stage them, there's no dead time, okay. Mm -hmm. I had a scene in back, then I had a scene in front of the red curtain while they were setting up in back, and then I would so I would go back and forth. So there's not five minutes in between scenes while they got to move things around. I, I stage it in a particular way. And uh, so that, that was, that was uh, and so Steve Wolf took first and I took second. And afterwards we figured out if I had been on before him, I would have taken first and he would have taken second mm. because the first piece of entertainment that was going to happen in that night was going to take first place. It didn't make any <laughs> difference which order they were in. That was the way that was, was going to run. Very nice. So that, that, was the, that was the other memorable stunt that I did. I mean, I obviously... I, uh, the other, the other one that I did that, that was, which I took completely off of a phonograph record was uh, um, Stan Freeberg's *The United States of America*, where they, where they, um, where they discover America. Okay, and uh, Columbus wants to um, uh, build a, uh, a an Italian restaurant. Okay, on on the shore. Okay, except that he can't get, except he can't get the money to do it because the banks are closed because it's Columbus Day. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> black. <laughs> whatever, whatever floats your boat. Sure. Okay? It, 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 the damn thing worked. Okay. Right. So those those were the, those were my memorable stuff. Very nice, very nice. So Collegiate Week was not a not a bad thing. You enjoyed it, and as you mentioned, for the first or second, four of your times. Not to mention one as a camper. And one is it? Well, that was the one as a camper where I didn't where I didn't contribute anything. <laughs> let's not go back to that. Your presence let's, let's was presence go. enough. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so you're in the period of camp. We're in the '60s now, and you're doing the medicine man. You're doing the warrior. You're enjoying collegiate week. Uh, what else? What else does your day look like at camp? Uh, well, that was basically my day. I didn't really start to be uh, a, a premier official, okay, until uh, the late 60s, and then slowly but surely, as people died off or whatever, okay, sure. I became more and more of an official. Now I'm, I'm like the rules expert, okay? Uh, everybody comes to... Every, they come to me for rules in the in the summertime. They come to me for rules in the wintertime. I got a, I got an email two years ago from somebody saying we're having this big argument, and Elliot is the only person who's going to know the answer. And they asked me a basketball rule, and I and I answered the question. That was the basketball rule, and there it went. 
but by around 1970 or 1971, I was uh, among the top officials, and starting in 73 or 74, I, w- I was the top official. Gotcha. And also during this time, now uh, starting at the very end of the 50s and leading into the 60s, you have uh, Dennis Rosen has started working at camp. Mm-hmm. Mickey is more of a factor right. in the running of camp. How is camp uh, changing in a big picture kind of way? Or is it? Well, I uh, well, I could either say it hasn't changed that much, or I could go on for about fifteen hours. Which which direction you well, want to go in? Well, uh, maybe more of the fifteen hours. <laughs> well, I mean, camp camp uh, until until we bought it in nineteen eighty five. Okay, was um, was a camp for the fifties, sixties, and seventies. Okay, it was very structured. There was a lot of competition, okay? You had lineup and cleanup competition. Did I mention that last time? I yes, know. I believe so. Okay. Uh, had lineup and cleanup competition. You had uh, uh, inner cabin sing, so forth and so on, okay? Everything was competition. Um, and, everyth- and everything was, was at least on the outside strict. That doesn't mean that it was strict all the time. What it means is, is that when you were doing something that maybe you shouldn't have done, possibly you were far more afraid of getting caught in in 1972 than you were in 2012. Okay? I see. Um, when uh, when we took over, um, we uh, and and by the way, that was exactly what should have been in the 60s, 70s, and the early 80s. Sure. Okay, I'm not being critical of it. I'm being observational. Okay, but as times have changed, so camp has changed also, and so we have taken a far more relaxed attitude toward towards things. It doesn't mean that we're not structured. We, we, in fact, we're probably even a little bit more structured. But there is less competition. There is less concern about, you know, whether somebody's on time to line up or whether somebody's five minutes late to the mess hall or something like that. It's not. It's not the. It's not the hanging offense that it was in nineteen in nineteen seventy. Yeah, that makes sense. You had a few years where you were an unofficial staff manager. Nin- yeah, I, I graduated law school in in nineteen seventy two to make my mother happy. It's the only reason I went to law school. There's no other reason. Um, well, I was going, actually, I considered going for the heights of Judaism, a doctor, a lawyer, and a CPA, wow. but, I can't, but I can't stand the sight of blood, so we, we stopped at lawyer and CPA. Um, and uh, uh, so in 19, so 1972, I said my farewell, okay? Uh, I made a little speech at the campfire site and so forth. So it was my last year at camp, okay? Goodbye. Then when I started working, I found out that I would be able to spend about 33 days at camp out of the 55. So I called Al and I had lunch with Al and I said, Al, how about if I come up to camp? I don't, uh, I'll be an unofficial counselor. I'll officiate. So I'll work. So they don't have to pay me. And I'll just use that as my vacation. He said, okay. So for three years, I was an unofficial counselor. I stayed in a cabin. I always made sure that it was a cabin where the senior counselor did not feel threatened by my being there. Mm. Um, not that I would have interfered, but it wasn't anything that they were concerned about. Sure. And, uh, and I, was, uh, I was an unofficial counselor for those three years. Then in 1976, um, I, I went to my boss and I said, boss, I won't tell you his name. Um, there's this thing in the uh, in the organization manual that says that you can take unpaid vacation, unpaid leave, as long as it does not negatively affect co- uh, client relations. And so they said, yes, that's true. I said, well, I want 10 days. Well, I was the first person in the history of the goddamn company 
that, so I had to go reread it. Okay, they actually had to take it under advisement for a week, <laughs> and they, they they finally said yes, you can do that. Well, now I could be at, at camp for forty six out of fifty five days. So now I became a counselor again. Okay, mm. um, as opposed as opposed to just being here, I was actually a counselor. And I would go home for three three day periods during the course of the summer, and other than that, I was uh, I was up here. Very nice. And by that time, you're probably one of the more senior counselors. Oh, by that time, I am the senior counselor. Yeah. Uh, what is the – that actually leads me to a question I haven't thought to ask before. What, what, the makeup of the staff is the uh, – these days, for example, there's a handful of guys who are over 30, we'll say. But it's not a big handful. And then the majority of the staff are 22 and under because they, they're maybe the guys who made it to college but could still come back during college. But usually after that, we lose everyone. Was it a pretty similar? Uh, it was a little bit longer than that. You usually uh, – uh, uh, you'd last for as many as six years as a senior counselor. Hmm because you would come up for your four years of undergraduate and then you would still come during graduate. Okay, mm-hmm. In those days, they didn't have the kinds of internships that they have now sure. uh, and, and, and so forth. And so people actually came up for six years. Uh, gotcha. They weren't as insistent on taking years. a break between the two right. and things like that. That makes sense. During the 70s, so you go back into the cabin. Now, at what point along the way do you become the go-to counselor in cabin 13? Well, I was a counselor in cabin 13 beginning in 1968. But in 1968, I was still the non-athlete. So let me assure you that nobody paid any attention to me during those years. Sure. Um, I did not, in 72, I was more or less the head counselor in cabin 13. Then it's 3, 4, and 5. I wasn't here. And then 76 when I was back in. Because Nachman and Bobby Kaufman and Ricky Matazar had it in 73, 74, 75. And when they were gone and I moved back in, I started over again, and at that point, I was I was the head counselor. Gotcha, gotcha. So many of the people that I've interviewed uh, come from an era where you were their counselor in thirteen. Certainly, I have a ton of people. Well, let's put it this or way: 14. I was everybody's counselor in thirteen until there was a fourteen, and then I was everyone's counselor in fourteen. Yeah, I I can remember there uh, coming a, there coming a time where I realized that whatever year it was that I looked around the staff and every staff man had been my camper at some point. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, okay. Now I've been here a long time. <laughs> yeah, that, Except for TJ, but we were in the cabin together. And so. I will point out that I cannot count on, uh, I would lose count of the number of people that I have taught to hold a fork between <laughs> 1965 and 2015, because <laughs> I go crazy when people do not hold a fork in it, and they're just like this, and they're sawing it, and blah, 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 and so forth, and I say, here, take it like this, do it like this, do it like this, and the angle of the fork makes it so that it doesn't move around, and so forth. Oh, my gosh. And, in fact, three parents over the years have contacted me after camp and said, I can't believe that you taught my kid to hold a fork. <laughs> Now, I've seen that um, taking cabins to dinner and things like that. I've seen you in, pr- in process of actually teaching that. Uh, but that does bring up a question. So uh, one thing that you're known for outside of camp is always being around uh, calling up camp guys, let's go to a ball game. Mm-hmm. Calling up camp, camp guys, let's go to dinner. Um, was that something that – was there a point where you decided that was a, an effort you were going to make going forward, or did it just sort of happen that way? Well, it was a combination because uh, – uh, there were kids that I liked. Okay, during the summer, I tried to make it a case uh, and probably not didn't do a very good job of it until after 66, okay? First couple of years, I was prone to playing favorites, okay? But starting uh, very early, okay, at camp, I treat everybody exactly the same, okay? And anybody that knows me will, will tell you that that's the case, okay? 
Um, but during the winter, there were certain kids, uh, certain kids, admittedly a lot of them that I really liked and so forth. And I spent a lot, of, and I spent a lot of time with them during the winter. Yes. Nice. It just kind of happened. It, it kind of happened, but it happened because I wanted it to. Sure. Because um, that, that's certainly something that um, is a piece of your history. And ref- when I, when I talk to other people, I mean, how many other people are like, oh yeah, well we went to that Bears game and then we had this conversation, or we went to that Bears game and then he totaled his car on a parking garage structure, yeah, right. or we, or well, and I used to and I used to take some of them to, to and ones that were uh, took a lot of them to theater also. Sure, of course. And certainly a lot of the guys that I've talked I mean, being a theater guy, I'm, I'm interested in that. A lot of the guys have said that some of the first exposure they got to any shows were, was with you because you liked plays. And it wouldn't have been something that they would have just gone to on their own or that their parents would have taken them to necessarily. Right. Yeah, for sure. So rolling through the years, uh, 70s lead into the 80s. and Yes, inevitably. It, as they say. And eventually we get to a point where camp is going to be for sale. Talk to me about how how do you get involved with that, and ultimately what happens. In 1985, Al uh, Al decided to sell camp. He offered it to Denny. Okay, uh, Denny and I had numerous conversations on the uh, on what was then the Yellow Bench, which is a whole other story that will come up in some of your other things, I'm sure. Sure. Um, and so forth and so on, and. Um, after visiting weekend, it was official that we could buy camp, okay, if we could raise the money. And we raised the money, and uh, that not just the purchase price, but uh, but some extra money because I said you can't run a business if you have to wait for your for the mail to come every day like you wait for your SAT score. Sure, okay, of course. it doesn't work that way, okay. So we were able we were able to raise the money to buy camp, and so uh, the other thing about that was that. Um, Cabin 13, uh, I don't think, if I, if I told this last time, stop me. Um, cabin 13, I had tried to get Al Schwartz to put a Coke machine in Cabin 13 for about 15 years, okay? They're older, okay? It's off to the side. The other kids don't get in there and so forth and so on. 15 and 16-year-old kids do not have to regulate their sugar content. They're, they don't sure. have to go and ask their mother, could I please have a Coke? They would just take one and so forth and so on. And Al would not do it because he said that he wanted to treat everybody the same, that he would certainly give extra treats in Cokes, but he did not want to have a Coke machine. And that bothered the hell out of me, okay? Mm. That was just one of those things that and I said uh, shouldn't be that way. So when Denny and I got together, okay, one of the things I said to him was, Denny, I will invest X amount of money and I will help you uh, do this and so forth and so on. But if we get the camp, I get a Coke machine in cabin 13, Okay. The day that we signed the papers, as we're walking out, Denny says to me, and I quote, now you get your Coke machine, end <laughs> quote. Okay? So he had not forgotten that I had told him that Very that nice. was my one condition, that, 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 that cabin 13. What had happened was, as, as cabin, the, the Schwartzes like to do everything you know, more or less evenly. And again, I don't necessarily agree with that. But there are certain things when you're dealing with 15 and 16-year-olds that you have to acknowledge are different, okay? For example, you have a rainy morning, okay? And we used to have rainy day activities. Now we don't do rainy day activities because <coughs> there's enough stuff going on that if, if they get stuck in a cabin for an hour, get stuck in a cabin for an hour. Well, cabin 13 would sleep, okay? And, and they would say to me, but we've got to have, but they've got to have an activity. And I would say, Mickey, Denny, 
they're asleep, okay? They're not doing anything. They're not hurting anything. There is no reason, okay? So one year, uh, I remember, so Mickey said, we've got to have an activity. I said, well, yeah. So I says, all right. I, so Mickey and I walked over to cabin 13. I took him to the front door. I opened the door. I says, Mickey, you go wake him up. Because I wasn't going to, okay? <laughs> he looked in there, and all of a sudden, what I said made a great deal of sense. Mm-hmm. Because there were literally 24 zombie kids who were not not doing anything at all under the circumstances, and we went from there. Yeah. Um, I, I did cabins differently than most other staff, okay? And, and Mickey acknowledged that it was unique to me. It wasn't necessarily for everybody else and very, very difficult to, for other people to do, but it was unique for me, and he said, and he had said several times, it worked, okay? So it wasn't, wasn't a case of my... I, I didn't do anything wrong, okay? My philosophy in a cabin, in cabin 13, was that, for that matter, anything, okay, I treat you as an adult until you act like a child, okay? Most, most people, you treat them like a child unless they act like an adult, sure. okay? So my philosophy was that if I treated them like adults, okay, that they would rise up to the, that they would try to attain that level, as opposed to going the other direction and being kids, okay, 15 and 16 years old. And it worked for me. It worked in, in my cabins, okay? I'm not saying it would work anyplace else. I'm not, I'm not saying that anybody else could do it. I'm not saying that nobody else could do it. I'm saying that that was unique to me, and it's one of the reasons why I stayed popular with the kids and stayed as a cabin counselor all the way through 2013 is because I always treat the kids always knew that if they behave themselves that that they would that they would get all kinds of extra privileges and 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 so forth and so on and uh, by the same token I never had kids do my cleanup okay I cleaned my own cubicle because my theory was that if that if uh, that I can't ask them to do something that I wouldn't do myself so and that was in the cabins also. Okay, if I, if uh, if if there was cleanup, okay, I cleaned the counselors' porch. I didn't ask the kids to clean the counselors' porch. I cleaned the counselors' porch because that was my area and that was my responsibility. I believe that I had better cleanups and I won lineup and cleanup competition because I did that because that encouraged the kids to do it the to, to do it as opposed to it being a chore. It was a necessity which we all did. That makes sense to me. I, I, it never even crossed my mind that you would have the kids clean your area. <laughs> I never even oh, thought of well, that possibility. Let me put it to you this way. In cabins 1 through 12 this year, uh, I would say that at least 11 of them, the kids clean the, the counselor's porch. <laughs> That's implying it gets done at all. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, you talk about the Coke machine. You talk about uh, cabin 13. What are some of the other changes that kind of come wholesale with the uh, transition into the new camp? Well, the, the key one is to move collegiate week from the sixth week to the eighth week. Um, the Schwartzes, uh, and this is not something that they told me, this is something that was, that was um, um, legend, okay? So it may not be. So please, Schwartzes, do not send me letters saying that's not true, okay? I, 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 I don't know whether it's true or not. <laughs> I know what legend is. I don't know what truth is. The um, uh, but the theory was that that they did not want to have collegiate week at the end of camp because they were because they, they didn't want to send eighty percent of the camp home losers. Okay, because remember it's a very competitive camp. Sure. And uh, so the seventh and eighth weeks they had um, you know medals and and so forth and so on while they were having playoffs. And they had all star games and so forth and so on. But it hardly it hardly ended camp on a high note, okay? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you watch all the camp movies that are, that are done now, okay, Meatballs and, 
and like that. There's always the big competition at the end of the summer. Well, they had their big competition in the middle of the summer, okay, towards the end, but not the end. And after the first year that we owned camp, we said, let's move Collegiate Week to the eighth week, okay? Now, we were scared to death because we didn't know what would happen once the winners were announced. Were you going to have 80% of the kids crying, or were you going to have, or, or whatever, okay? And it worked perfectly, okay? We announced the winners, and then everybody went out and played Frisbee or, or, or whatever, and it was like nothing ever happened. Yeah. So that meant, though, that camp ended on a high note. Camp ended exciting, right up, and everybody had something to do right up to the last minute, which otherwise didn't exist before. I think that is the biggest change. Mm. Now, a few years later, there's another pretty significant change, and that is the four-week camp option. Where did you stand on that, and how did that process go? Well, 1994, we switched to a four-week camp because we uh, because there is not a market for enough kids who will go for eight weeks. We actually, we actually right now have more eight-week campers than any of the other camps by a wide margin. Okay, we'll run 120 to 148-week campers, but 120 to 140 isn't enough for for, for just camp for a whole run, camp. Okay, right? so in 1994. Um, we decided to make it two four-week sessions. Up until then, uh, we had had, like, your first year you could come for four weeks, okay, with the option to stay, okay, Mm. and like that. But eventually it just became two four-week camps, and slowly but surely over the next year or two, we made the transition, okay, we... We had the um, the Ojibwe Games, which which was an uh, end of camp thing or the Olympics or whatever, uh, for the first four weeks and so forth and so on. And we we evolved it. It wasn't like automatic that everything just went, but for the most part, it was it was relatively smooth. And again, we still the reason that we have um, so many eight week campers is because unlike most other camps. Our camp, season, our camp sessions are not mirror images, okay? Right. The first four and the second four are not the same. So a, so a kid is more likely to want to stay for eight weeks because when they're here for the first four, okay, they know that there is something different than exciting the second four as opposed to we're going to do the same thing again. And yeah. I honestly believe that, that that is a very, very successful marketing uh, opportunity. Absolutely. It certainly, uh, and it certainly was a successful move then at the time. Yeah. When you get to that point in the 90s, from the uh, takeover of camp until that sort of mid-90s, it, camp is growing and surviving but not thriving yet. That process is in, but once the four-week program hits, that's when the yeah. Well, but we did other things. Comes. For instance, with the older kids, in, in in those years, basketball was the big sport, and so we did basketball every morning for the oldest kids, mm. and that got a lot of kids to come to camp. Sure, okay. The morning intensive basketball, I believe it was called. But but no no the inten- intense basketball was because we had instruction at seven thirty in the morning. I'm just saying. Oh, I'm just I saying see. Basketball games. Okay? Oh, I see what you're saying. So so they they go home and they tell their friends, you know, we play basketball every morning, every morning because the other camps would do like every two or three days. Yeah. Well, we we created the program to meet the needs of the kids. Okay, to meet what the kids would enjoy doing. And that was that was also very very big, and and that was Danny's idea. That wasn't mine. That was Danny's idea. I will say uh, certainly one of the overall strengths of Ojibwe, and especially since the Rosen era, at least, is an understanding of the children. Mm-hmm. And one could look at a camp and say, well, if a camp's only ever had two directors in ninety years, and you know they were never young, <laughs> or they were young for such a short period of time relative to their time at camp. 
how do they understand those kids so well? And I would even I would put you in with the 16-year-old program because really creating what what now is cabin 14 and what that transition was. Now the first year was a little out of control with the jet skis and the show up if you want to. <laughs> but but what the cabin 14 program has become, having the, you know, having their own separate building away, having the TV, the go-karts, everything, that program is something that no other camp can really do successfully. Right, and we get we get 20, 25 kids. Uh, okay, we have 87 uh, high school kids this year, and uh, one of the other camps has 25, yeah. okay? And that's because we, the major change, I think, and this is Denny, okay? I agree with it. I come up with ideas also, but, but Denny's philosophy, unlike from before, is that we do everything age-appropriate, okay? As opposed to, Everybody should be treated more or less the same. Now everything is age appropriate. So a 16-year-old is treated differently than a 14-year-old who is treated differently than a 12-year-old who is treated differently than a 10-year-old and so forth and so on. And that is a major plus for our for, for camp. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. The population at camp starts to grow substantially. And with that 94 crowd in those in the first four weekers, and that's when you get your Asher Winnigs and that crew that starts to bubble up. So that by the time we 2002, we had 290 kids. Yes, a very full camp. Very, very, (laughs) very full camp. But it was a full camp because we had the right mix. In other words, there were 32 kids in cabin 14, and cabin 14 could have 32 kids. And there was, and cabin 13 was full, so we didn't have to have split cabins, okay? Right, right. Um, it, it just worked out that we could have that many people. And then in 2000, so in 2000, I'm sorry, uh, so the cabin 14 program starts with a handful of guys living in the back of the lodge, and then that turns into the dad's lodge being converted to right. a in cabin. 91 or 92. Right. And the and first... In 93, I was in there, and then in 1994, I was not in there because the group that was in there in 1994 was so nauseating that I went back to 13 for a year because I didn't want to spend any time with those people whatsoever. And so Mike Weinstein uh, was up for that one year, and now I know why. He was only up for the one year, and he was the counselor in 14. I was in 13, and then I moved back, moved back to 14. Would you like to single out anyone specifically, I like Brent Victor? I do not want to single out anyone specifically. <laughs> I would like... I, well, let's put it this way. Louis LaPat was the only human in that in that group, <laughs> and he left after four weeks because he couldn't stand it either. Right. <laughs> so the 14 program grows. Uh, eventually, Snower joins you in the cabin, and then eventually I join you in the cabin, and then eventually TJ joins us in the cabin, and we have uh, the four of us sort of ride off into the sunset together. Snower eventually gets old and yeah. has a baby and a wife and a dog and a job. <laughs> Uh, TJ moves out to the waterfront and then eventually, uh, your last year in the cabin. So uh, talk to me about that period of time. I think being in there with you and us having conversations, I knew that you knew you were on a ticking clock. Yeah. Not, well, not next year, but like, no, the reality reality is that I told Denny many years ago that he would not have to tell me when I can't do a particular thing anymore. I would tell him. Right. So five years before I stopped being a group leader. Why I stopped being a group leader? Because I was ineffective. And so I went to Denny. I said, Denny, I'm not doing the job. If I'm not doing the job, then I shouldn't have the job. And when we got to three uh, three years ago, I called Denny and I said, Denny, I don't think I should be the counselor in there anymore, okay? Even though I still relate to the kids very, very well. Sure. Heaven knows. But I, I can't do the job, okay? I can't. I can't relate to them in enough areas like I used to, okay? 
and so I and, and, and so I moved out. It wasn't I never had to be told. I, I, I moved out myself. Sure. How was that sort of last run for you personally? I mean, did it was it something you thought about, or was it something you just was matter of no, fact? No, it's something something that you just realize. Okay, I mean, I I didn't say okay. Well, this is this could be the last year, and so forth and so on. Okay, when I got there, okay, I said okay, I'm there. Okay, it wasn't like I said a year before. Gee, maybe it'll only be one more year. No, I got there, and then I said okay, this year, kids still had a good time. Okay. Sure. Staff worked okay. Everything still worked in the cabin. Nobody, nobody realized it, but I realized that I was not being as effective as I could be, and so there. And and so the, the, I terminated. I terminated myself. Gotcha. Kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of. Uh, <laughs> Wait uh, a second. Whatever. <laughs> so in 2003, I moved in, and I've often said, and I'm happy to say it here on the air in front of you that. My experience, and it was my third year at camp that I moved in, and I think everyone collectively had figured out that I probably didn't need to be with 10-year-olds, that my sensibilities were a little more 16-year-old, and still are, I suppose. Uh, but also, too, that I, you guys needed a little help. I, fit, I was already working with those guys in other aspects anyway. It just made sense. It was the right move. But from that period until you leaving the cabin, that I've always said, that was my camp experience. That was me. I got to be a camper with you as my counselor to some degree while we were there together. I got to, I, I learned how to be a counselor from you uh, in a lot of ways, especially specifically to those 16-year-old kids. But I also got to have a taste of what it was like to be a camper in that cabin, even though I was part yeah. of the staff. So thanks for that. That Thank was great. You. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, and so now... Uh, you're not in the cabin. You still come to camp. What's uh, what's camp day like for you? How do you? Well, my major job at camp is to run Collegiate Week, and uh, and that means that I run Collegiate Week. That means that Denny and Joel and Stu all go running in the other direction when Collegiate Week starts. Okay, yes. I once said to Joel, Joel, you know, you may have to do this someday, and he said, No, I won't. Okay, <laughs> just, that, just that simple. Um, uh, and that doesn't mean that they couldn't, and it doesn't mean that if they had to, they, they, they wouldn't, okay? Certainly. But I'm more than happy to come up and, uh, and run the entire collegiate week and make all the decisions and so forth and so on. And over the years, I've been able to, to, to solidify the persona that says that I don't care who wins. I will make every decision based upon what I think is fair. Once I make a decision, I'll go like that, and you go back to the game, and you won't keep on arguing with me. And it's been very, very successful because I'll listen. I, I, I will. I will listen. Okay. And if I listen to both sides, and I say, okay, this is what I think. I had one this year that was really, really tough. Okay. There was a there was a photographer who was standing on the rink. Okay, at one end of the hockey rink. To be fair, videographer. Which videographer? Yes, indeed. Okay. And somebody used him as a screen to score a goal. <laughs> and so, okay, so now I'm sitting there and I'm saying, okay, rule number one is that a legal object on the field is a legal object on the field, and if it hits him, it hits him. And the other side says, that is the most unfair thing that I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life because he wasn't standing in the center. If he'd have been standing in the center, I would have let it go. Right. But he was standing at one end, and they were using him for a screen. So I finally said, nope, no goal. And I went like that, and everybody and everybody went back. So yeah. that was right. But that's because everybody knows that I don't play favorites, and everybody knows that I I think it through and come up with something that seems logical and rational in the circumstances. I've said it a million times. If you were going to rig Collegiate Week, we would have had a tie by now. 
I'm sorry. If we were gonna, if you were gonna rig collegiate week at all, we would have had a tie by now. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> that would have sure. been first would, on the list. Absolutely. And speaking of ties, we are in the midst. We are just finishing up right now, one of the tightest collegiate weeks. I uh, certainly the tightest of my time here. Um, yeah, up through the fifth day, there were still seven, eight teams in it. Yeah, it was. I mean, right. even. And even then, I think there were 10 that weren't mathematically eliminated yeah. yet. It was really astounding. Um, quite a week. Quite a week. For those of you listening, we had stunt night last night. And, and that was quite a stunt night. But that's another story. <laughs> it was like most other stunt nights. So here you are. Uh, now Here I are. 60 years into your camp career? Is that this right? This is my 60th year at camp, and I'm having a wonderful time thanks to my cabin mates and counselors. <laughs> Do you like to thank Denny, Sandy, Joel, Rachel... Not necessarily in that order, <laughs> I guess. Uh, do you get nostalgic about it ever? Do you get sentimental about no, it? No, no, because I'm not. I'm not a sentimental person. Okay. Uh, to, to you, first of all, everybody that knows me knows that I'm a, I'm a trekker. Okay, not sure. a trekkie, a trekker. Okay, let's get that clear. And if you even know that those are two separate words, then you're definitely a trekker, and that's fine. No question about it. Okay. <laughs> um, but I am Spock. Okay. Uh, I don't. I don't have any. I don't have any emotion going back. I don't have any emotion going forward. Okay. I take care of what I have to take care of during the day. So I'm not nostalgic for 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 things. I don't. Uh, I don't uh, sit and look at all the pictures and say, oh gee, da da and uh, so forth. I mean, I'll remember them. As well. Other than, of course, the snowmobile accident picture, sure. which you which you very nicely featured on the camp website. Well, I wanted people to know that it wasn't just a legend, that it was actually true. Well, actually, the picture that you chose is only of the wreckage. Okay, I'm not in that picture, okay? If you want to put one on that's really a good one, you ought to use one of the other ones. <laughs> uh for those of you who have been able to listen to Elliot's first podcast, it's clear he doesn't know that we used his face picture <laughs> right after the accident for that podcast when we posted it. Oh, okay. So don't worry, we've let them know. Uh, speaking of the snowmobile accident, I need you to clarify a little controversial statement. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I had on as the guests uh, Doug Singer and Mick Sampson. Uh, fantastic story. They were great guys. Really, I'd never met either one of them, and it was awesome to get to talk to them. But Mickey Sampson said in the podcast that he was, in fact, the other person on the snowmobile during the infamous snowmobile and accident. That, and that's true. During his dream that night in which he wished that he had been on the back of the snowmobile <laughs> so that he could take credit for being on the back of the snowmobile. But it was actually Brian Borstein. I see. Excellent. So thank you for uh, confirming that on the air. And we will be having Brian Borstein on to go through therapy with him on the mics <laughs> and talk about the traumatic experience and how he's dealt with life since then. What are the other big stories? What are the other big ones we missed? Well, uh... Well, I mean, I've got a zillion stories, but um, no, I I don't know that I don't know that you missed much else. Okay, I mean, I I'm here every every summer. I'm here, and I'm and I do this and I do that, and then we go on to something else. I know something I want to ask you about. There was a long-standing tradition at camp uh, from the old days where we would spend the day celebrating the birthdays of everyone at camp. Um, and frankly, the idea of the, the dinner where you sat with people born in the same month as you and then every table got a birthday cake was fantastic. To me, I think that could come back. That's really cool as having a non-camp that, birthday. That could come back, yes. However, along with that was the, the reading of a poem yes. that was meant to also celebrate most of the people at camp. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how well, it started? Well, there, there, there are a number of things. Okay, first of all... Um, the, uh, I started in 57, okay? 
So in 57 through the early 70s, it was written by other people, okay? And they would write, you know, uh, you know different things and, and like that. And it was very uh, mundane, okay? Like uh, I, uh, the, 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 the harshest thing in the 1965 poem was Dennis DeLee, Stick It In Your Ear. Okay, that, that was the that was, that was the sum total of, of 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 anything that was was cutting or whatever was Dennis the least stick it in your ear. Okay, okay. Um, I took it over in the early uh, early to mid seventies, and I have a rather sarcastic sense of humor, which at and people who know me and everybody who's listening to this who ever knew me knows that I do not insult people to. To make fun of them, okay. I will do clever things, but I never do anything that, that would hurt anybody, okay. At least not intentionally. And I think I'm pretty good with that over the years. So, I would write the poem, and um, it had all kinds of things in it that happened at camp that the head staff was not supposed to know. I see. Um, and the unwritten rule of camp was that you could not get into trouble for anything that was was in the birthday poem. Because if you could get into trouble, then of course I couldn't do it. Hmm. And so the birth and and so they they got, you know, most of it was staff. Okay, so uh, you know once one staff person, you know if, if somebody, shall we say, got lucky. Okay, sure. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and uh, with uh, with uh, a girl somewhere, then it would probably make it into the poem, but it would make it into the poem in a way where. A little kid would not be able to figure out what get lucky means because I would use some other thing, okay? Yes. But an older kid would say, oh, he got laid, okay? <laughs> and, 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 and like that, okay? Sure. Um, so, so that went until 1994. And without being terribly specific, in 1994, I put something into the poem, which was... Uh, no, I, no, I'll do the G-rated. I'm going to do the G-rated version. Uh, you can rate it. Just leave the name out. I think. <laughs> well, I, I don't remember the name. Okay, but the uh, the uh, I put something in about these two kids being very good friends. Okay, mm. because somebody told me you know put into the poem that these two kids are very good friends. Okay, they were in cabin four, and what I did not know is that um. They were more than good friends, even though, but they were campers in cabin four, so there's nothing to be read into it. Okay? I see. And so when they got home, because we reprinted the warrior in the, in, in the war, we reprinted the poem in the warrior. Sure. When they got home, some of the, all of a sudden the kids were making fun of them because they were very friendly. Okay. And that was the end of the birthday poem, okay? At that point, we did not do the birthday poem. The only other birthday poem that's ever been done was that in 2002 when I had my uh, cabin. My two best cabins were 1983 and 2002, okay? There was nothing As good as a lot of cabins were, nothing could compare to those two cabins. And in 2002, I wrote a birthday poem only for that cabin about that cabin, and it resides on my computer and about once every seven years, they, they, when a group of them come up here, we have to go out to the campfire site so I can reread the birthday poem <laughs> from 2002 to them so that they could laugh at it all over again. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yes, the, the birthday poem is definitely the part of the birthday day that uh, unfortunately probably cannot live on. Well, and and, and, may, and maybe it shouldn't been, maybe it shouldn't have been allowed to live on then. I don't sure. know. Okay, but uh, it, it's it's not there now and. 
nobody I mean, nobody misses it except for now the people who are reading the birthday poems on your stupid website. Um, are, <laughs> That's CampoJimboHistory.org, by yeah, the way. JimboHistory.org. Please, please put a quarter in the slot before you, uh, before you access. Um, the, uh, the, 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 all those warriors have got those birthday poems, and they will be able to figure out some of the things uh, that are in there. Yes, and, and in some ways that actually is... is uh, <laughs> societally part of the disappearing of the birthday poem is that once you get into the mid nineties and the internet exists and we start to have ways to, uh, have these things out in the world that, and in a bigger picture way, that is a, maybe one of the biggest changes ever at camp is the change from what happens at camp is only at camp. And there's not even a way to really get it out. Um, to now camp is, broadcast live every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do a radio show. I put up 6,000 pictures a day. I put up video clips every other day. Kids, some of the older kids are allowed to have their phone, Snapchat to other people constantly. Staff, Snapchat, Instagram constantly. We're putting up Facebook messages constantly. I don't know how any of those things work. They're, <laughs> well, they're all social media. Okay. And, um, I, and yeah. social media and I do not get along, so I don't know how any of those things Sure. Work. But it... I think that in the in the sort of long-term game sense has been the biggest change to camp is that and and it doesn't it's not that one is better than the other it's that there was a time when camp was more about independence and while that's still what we preach and still what we teach that it's impossible to sort of get away from some of that these days yeah that's true yeah what else Oh, that's 58 minutes and 26 seconds. I think that that's uh, good for this I didn't, time. I didn't realize these were billable hours. Yeah, that's right. The next next time we, we need to talk about other people's stunts. Excellent. So the next episode with Elliot Friedman will be an all-stunt review. Oh, I should have got Futransky and Katz in here. The three of you could have talked about stunts all day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Katz would talk about the Code of the West, which was the second worst stunt in the history of Collegiate Week. The first worst stunt was you're in the Army now, okay, and then was the Code of the West, and those two will stand forever as being Drek. Wow. Well, I think on that note, I think that about says it. Thank you so much for your time today, Elliot. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Okay, that is it. Part two. Elliot, in the books. What a way to finish off 2016, huh? Right there with uh, part two of Elliot's story. Hope you guys dig it. Uh, Obviously, we had a lot of fun. A lot of stories were told. Good stuff. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, as always, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampoJibbaHistory.org. Or, of course, just swing by the website and see what's doing over there. 2017 is going to kick off with some new stuff, of course, as we head into OJ90 and the ticket sale kickoff. We're going to be putting up some new, fresh stuff over at the website as well, just to keep you guys tantalized and excited about the upcoming celebration. I want to wish you all a happy and healthy holiday season. Uh, Whatever you happen to celebrate, I hope it's been wonderful and you were able to take some time to reflect on those you love, the year past, and the year ahead. 2016 had its ups and downs for sure. Here's hoping 2017's the best one ever. <laughs> <laughs>